All right. Well, we are going to pick up where we left off last time, and uh, you should be getting at least one email a week and with links to the documents that are up on the uh, Google Drive. Is anyone not getting those who wants to get those? Did we have one this week? We did have an email. Mm -hmm. You're not? Okay, I'll, I'll get with you. Everyone knows Sandra, right? My mother-in-law, Terry's mother. She's kind enough to come bless us with her presence in my class. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but she doesn't get the emails, you know. Well, the class is based on a book that I have been writing. I was thinking about it today. I'm, I'm working through the book and trying to outline it and put it together for presentation to publishing houses, which is a very discouraging process if you've ever done that, especially these days. Um, seems like all they want to do is make money, you know. They don't want to publish great books. They just want to make money, which are not necessarily always the same thing, are they? Um, I've been reading one particular author, and you know how you get hooked on an author, and then you just start going, oh, I'm going to read the next thing. And I mean, every one of his books, and this is just blatant, every one of his books are exactly the same. It's just, you know, rearranged, sometimes page after page after page. And I actually had two of them together, and I said, and the chapters are exactly the same. And I thought, and he's published by a, a well-known publishing house, I thought. How can I get away with that? How about it when you're Yeah, exactly. But it's, um, the book is about salvation. What it means when the New Testament tells us that we have been saved. And as our friend um, Keith Wise points out, that terminology is not all that popular in, in the text. It's certainly not as popular in the text as it is in the Christian world, right? You know, I got saved. The, the nuances are quite significant, quite astounding, actually, that God, you know, I think of David in Psalm 8. What is man that you would be mindful of him, that you would do this on our behalf, but, but offer to... I mean, and not only erase our sins, which is enough, but it's so much more than that. It's to incorporate us into his life, to share his life, his nature, his character with us. Um, I mean, it just, it blows my mind. And the whole concept of getting saved, in my opinion, has gotten so distorted through the centuries and that's what I'm trying to trace out, is how I think it got off track. And one of the biggest uh, early practices that got baptism so off track is infant baptism. I mean, it just violates, because to me, God has always made an overture toward human beings anticipating a particular response to his overture. It's a relationship. It's, it's always about a relationship that he seeks with us. 
And that response is always a faith-filled, um, obedient in the sense that it, it responds in the way God reveals he wants us to respond. And it's always been that way. It, it began in the garden, and it followed the, the children of Israel, and it comes right up into the New Testament. And it seems to me that the whole conversation has gotten off track. And one of the things that I showed in the last couple of weeks is when you start applying baptism to infants, you're basically cutting out most of the things God says he wants in the human response. For example, simply hearing. Well, it's more than hearing this message. It's comprehending the message. It's understanding that the, the message is altering your paradigm it's it's subversive in that sense it's taking your understanding of reality and turning it upside down jesus wasn't a criminal being punished by the roman government for his crimes jesus was the perfect son of god being crucified for the sins of all humanity well those are two radically different perspectives of what took place and when they heard that it changed I mean, they had to comprehend it. Jesus didn't just die on a cross. He died on a cross for me. So now what response is God anticipating? And that brings them to repentance, which is, you know, turn because Christ is creating God, is inaugurating God's new creation. And that new creation is running alongside Tell Diane hello for me. <laughs> is running alongside the old creation that has fallen from God, and God is allowing them to run side by side. And He calls us to live while we remain in the old creation. Our value system and our understanding of reality is not no longer in allegiance to the old system. It's in allegiance to the new creation that he's creating in us. And so that response can't be made by an infant. That understanding, that level of understanding, calling to repentance, and part of that is the confession, the agreement with God that Jesus is the Lord of this new creation. That's more than just words out of your mouth. That's an attitude of your heart and your mind and it determines how you thereafter direct your will. If Jesus is Lord of the new creation, and I am a citizen of the new creation, then Jesus is my Lord. And I now direct my will in accordance with his will. Thy will be done, not mine. So, so all of that, but, but the practice of infant baptism, see, it just... It isolated that one act. Put water on an infant and you remove sin. And that practice developed first before the doctrine of original sin. Augustine, as we're going to talk about tonight, he used the practice that had been going on for 150, 200 years to lay the foundation and justify, if you will, or at least support his theory, his doctrine of original sin. So that's what we're talking about right now is the doctrine of original sin. 
Now, in Churches of Christ, I don't know what your experience has been. I've been going uh, to buildings that have the name Church of Christ on them for over 40 years. I don't hear a lot of talk about the doctrine of original sin, other than it's bad, right? We don't believe it. But what do we believe? What can we say? And remember, the doctrine of original sin is not talking about an act. It's talking about a state of existence. What happened when sin was introduced into God's creation? And so what is certain and what remains a mystery? Well, we saw last time Adam and Eve were radically altered by their sin. Do you agree? And can you think of some of the ways we talked about them being altered? Any, they covered themselves, and why did they cover themselves, Don? Yeah. In chapter 2, it says, it, it literally says in the English, they were naked and they felt no shame. Now, after they sinned, they covered themselves. And we joked, I joked, about of all things to cover yourself with, you might as well grab a piece of 80-grit sandpaper and put it on the most delicate part of your body they grabbed a fig leaf which is hairy and prickly and apparently contains some kind of chemical that's highly toxic so it's 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 a i think a, a semi-humorous story especially the story of adam hiding behind the tree you know shh here he comes he might see us the creator of the universe you know gonna gonna be blocked out so they were altered by their sin. Okay. The human environment was radically altered by sin. Do you agree or disagree? What are some ways it was altered? See, that's when those thorns and prickly pears and everything came on those fig leaves. <laughs> Somebody said, and what's the... Okay, and so it's paradise, and why is it paradise in a spiritual sense? That's where God was. And they were innocent. They were innocent before, but on the outside looking back, they're now in this environment that... They have to deal with rocks and growing their own food, planting and growing their own food. Exactly. Drought. And God says, you're, you're going to make your living by toil, the sweat of your brow. And so I, you know, I mentioned every, when I get into my funk and my stinking thinking, you know, I think, man, I'm just going to get on a boat and find some deserted island and live there the rest of my days. And there I'll be happy, right? No. You think I'll still toil to catch you'll, fish? And, you'll be lonely. And how will I be? Why you see, I think of Tom Hanks. Oh, Mike's uh, Yeah, it's in the castaway, you know. That was not an easy existence for the guy, right? So it, you can run, you, but you can't hide from it, right? Okay. So here's the question that the doctrine of original sin asks Adam and Eve their their nature was somehow see I hesitate to use that terminology because I, I I'm not sure I agree with that but 
but this is what the doctrine contemplates. Their nature was altered. The question becomes, did they then pass that nature on to their descendants? That's the question. Um, of course, the Western church through Augustine says yes. And this is the doctrine of original sin. Alan? I think it even goes just a hair deeper than that, too, because it's not only the sin nature, but it is we are now guilty exactly. at birth Very good. of being in sin. So at birth, we're guilty of Adam's sin and therefore justly deserving of punishment. Everybody get the distinction? Okay, and thank you, Alan. And, and we're going to talk about that in in a minute. Don? But there is scripture that says I was conceived in sin. Thank you. Now, this position isn't without scriptural proof text, right? So it's a thorny issue. Okay. The Eastern Church. Yeah. Thorny issue. It's thank you. <laughs> I'm a, yeah. Pun intended. The Eastern Church, Bob as well, is not so sure if we limit it to the sinful nature. Okay? I don't know. I know a lot of our modern English translations use that terminology, especially in Paul. When Paul uses the Greek word sarx, which literally means flesh, which is different than the word soma, which means body. So he's not necessarily, although sometimes he uses it for the physical body, He's not talking about the physical body. He's talking about something else. And instead of translating it literally into what would the English equivalent would be flesh, our, especially the New International Version, what does it use? Sinful nature. Clearly an influence that you and I may or may not agree with. So here's, here's what I say. <clears throat> the self-image of Adam and Eve definitely changed. The relationships changed. I mean, flesh of my flesh, bone of my phone, bone, that's how God or that's how Adam viewed his lovely wife, which is how we're supposed to now view our wives under the Christian uh, paradigm. But after he sinned, what was Adam's attitude toward Eve? It was her, this woman that you gave me. There you go. <laughs> this woman that you gave me, she made me do it. So there's already a an animosity or a, or a, an antagonism between the female and the and her spouse. The first deflection of guilt. Yeah, defensiveness is what modern psychology would call it. Their attitudes change. Their attitude toward themselves, their attitude toward God, their attitude toward their existence. And so, so those are things that happen to Adam and Eve personally. But we've also said God withdrew from his creation. They were no longer in direct <laughs> communion with God. They were separated from God. Now, isn't that the definition of spiritual death? Yes. So I would almost go as far to say that spiritual death was a consequence of the first sin. So here's the beginning of the, the 
full disclosure on my part of my understanding of this concept of original sin. I don't know about the sinful nature, and I'm going to say in a minute, frankly, I don't care either. It doesn't matter because the result is the same. We're born into an environment that is arguably spiritually dead. Secondly, God removed access to the tree of life. Now, what does that mean? Physical death, it says so. Yeah, thanks, Erica. You can read. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the, it, the clear implication to me is, and you'll get argument on this. Of course, you'll get argument on anything, right? But you'll get... But it clearly says God perceived that the man and woman now knew the difference between good and evil. And he said, lest they reach out their hand and eat of the tree of life and live forever. He cast them out and placed the cherubim there to protect them or to protect the tree and keep human beings from eating of it and living forever. Alan? I think you may have even been right when you said protect them. Um, because if you think that's actually a blessing, how would you like to be in forever spiritual death? Thank you. And I made that point last time. You know, physical death, I've used this many times at, at funerals that I've preached. Physical death is not God's punishment. It is an act of God's mercy. Can you imagine, as Alan's pointing out, living, you know, even a few hundred years in this stuff? Okay, keep, keep your first line there. God withdrew from his creation, or did the <clears throat> have to have sin removed from his presence? Yeah, yeah, either way you want to say it. It does, I mean, it says the same thing, but right. God's still there. God is still there. And he has to send them away. Very good. Out. Very good. Okay, okay. But here's the, here's the point I'm making. These things, I think, for, for me to get my mind around it and have as few glaring, flopping loose ends in my mind, which my OCD doesn't like, I have to do it this way. This is personal to Adam and Eve. Did they pass that on to their descendants? I don't care because I know this is a reality and this has the same result. So I don't even need to deal with that in my mind. I'm not saying you have to follow my path on this, but, but that's how I do it in my mind. And I'll, I'll flesh that out in a minute. A Can little you more. go by that again about the spiritual death? Well, what we're saying is, you know, Isaiah said to the people of old, your sins have separated you from God. Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins. If you are in the presence of sin, then you are spiritually dead. If sin is being accounted to you as a being, you are a spiritually dead being. Why? Because of what Keith is saying. God cannot dwell in the presence of sin. Right. Now, is that when they started doing the... Um sacrifice, the giving the fruit, the lamb, sacrificing the lamb? No, that came later. It, it definitely came before the law of Moses, but, it, but we have no record of Adam and Eve making those types of sacrifices. It isn't until we get 
to Noah, right? Isn't Noah the first person? I'd have to look that up. Cain and Abel made sacrifices. Yeah. So, because um, I was wondering if they were named before death, or was there a that's, way for forgiveness? That's a great question. That's a great question. Okay, so let's look at the extremes now. That's we've got we've got an overview, but let's delve into the extreme ideas here. The first extreme is kind of on one end of the continuum that all human beings sinned in Adam. By one man sin entered into the world, says Paul in Romans 5. Romans 5, 12 through 21 is the go-to passage for original sin. So by one man sin entered into the world, one act wrought a constitutional change in Adam. We know that for sure. It changed him drastically, but Adam then passed that along we would use the terminology in our modern science understanding genetically. I mean, because Cain was born of the union of a man and a woman and shared the blood, the biology, genetically somehow this constitutional change, this sin nature gets passed on genetically. Each human being and we're going to talk about more about this in a minute. This is Augustine's interpretation of Romans 5.12, using the Latin Vulgate, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Each human being was in Adam when Adam sinned. Now, that's not an unknown concept in the Bible. You remember in uh, Hebrews chapter 7, when the Hebrew writer is talking about um, Abraham offered... Uh, sacrifices to Melchizedek, Melchizedek was a priest because you only offer sacrifices to a priest. Therefore, is the Hebrew writer's argument, Levi and the Levitical priesthood is subordinate to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Well, why? How can that be? Because Levi was present in the loins or in the body of Abraham. Abraham. So Abraham represented Levi when he offered sacrifices to Melchizedek. And it's a it's kind of an elaborate argument, but the point is the same type of argument is being made here. Adam is under this doctrine and this extreme view of the doctrine is our they use the terminology our federal representative. So when he sinned we all sinned because we were in him at the time, if we are his biological descendants, which we are. So the other extreme, so that's down here on this extreme. The other extreme is that Adam and Eve, they were guilty of sin, but they did not pass that guilt on to their descendants, which I think you and I would agree with. We're, gonna, we're getting there. But Adam and Eve were corrupted by sin as a part of their nature, and they did not pass that on to their descendants either. I don't know where I come down on that, but like I keep saying, it doesn't matter to me because I wind up in the same place, which I'll, I'll show you in the next 32 minutes. 
Now this, this extreme is historically associated with a British monk named Pelagius. And Augustine in the late 300s and early 400s hammered out his view of original sin in direct reaction and opposition to Pelagianism. And Pelagianism was eventually uh, condemned as a heresy and Augustine's view with modification was embraced by the Western Church. And Alan, I'm going to bring up that modification and, and it may give you pause to think, so you'll have to go home and think about it. Okay, so the core of Pelagianism, here's what he said. Adam's sin harmed only himself. Humans neither die because of Adam's sin nor rise because of Christ's resurrection. Go ahead, Carl. No, that's the problem. Okay. Now, just as an aside, 15-second aside, he's, he's using Romans 5, 12 through 21. And he, he's presenting these propositions of his doctrine in response to how Augustine is using the same passage. And he says, look, if you conclude that everyone died in Adam automatically, then you also must conclude that everyone becomes alive in Jesus Christ automatically. And so you wind up with kind of a universalism, right? And God's done it all, and we don't have to do anything. He's taken care of it. He saved all of us. We don't have to do anything. Infants enjoy the status spiritually and morally speaking, of Adam before the fall. So everyone's born with a tabla rasa, a clean slate. Who's that I'm quoting? John Locke, a very prominent philosopher in our culture that laid the foundation for the Enlightenment. Both law and the gospel are means of salvation. So if you... If you try really hard, you can keep the law and you can make it into paradise without the gospel. But if you mess up, then that's the safety net. That's kind of the idea that Pelagius presents. Go ahead. Law meaning the Old Testament law? Law of sin. Yeah. Law Just sin. living without sin. So it's a little bit of law. And there were sinless men and women prior to Christ. And Pelagius, you know, he, he cites Job, Noah, uh, Enoch, walked with God and was taken by God. So these are examples of people who lived sin-free lives, according to Pelagius. So the conclusions. Cain is born as innocent as his parents. Every generation is born without a corrupt nature. Every human being is capable of living a perfect, sin-free life. Write some of those out. Both law and the gospel are a means of salvation in pure Pelagianism. It's interesting. He's taking an argument from Romans 5 and, and contradicting the same book. It says in multiple places that all sin and fall short of the glory of God and by means of the law shall no flesh be justified. Right. 
Yeah, he's picking and choosing. He's cherry picking. Got his proof text. Capable is very different than accomplishing. Okay. I could be capable of something, but never really going to accomplish it. And I think there's that's a slight nuance there. Because there is a man who did live a simple life. Perfect. Thank you. 100% so, human. 100% human. Yeah. So to say, is there that capability? I don't know. Has anyone been able to do that? No. I mean, scripture is very clear. It says, no, no one has accomplished it. Except Jesus. Okay, very good. So let's let's uh, let's go back now, and that's an overview of the two extremes. Let's let's talk about it a little bit. We've got about twenty six minutes. Before we do, though, I just want to prepare you. Neither of these two extremes solves all the issues. I don't. I mean, I don't. I've thought about it for forty years. I've read unbelievable volumes of information and no matter what you decide you're going to believe there's always loose ends that cannot be answered so there's always going to be you know the so-called mystery i don't know if you're comfortable with that but that's just the way it is logically neither extreme and no position anywhere in the middle of the continuum solves all the issues logically you always have a question yeah but so let's start okay so extreme number one all were in adam when adam sinned and again hebrews 7 that's the concept we were represented by him and we were in his loins so to speak when he sinned and then genetically as he re, uh, reproduced we inherited that genetically from him Therefore, all are guilty of Adam's sin. Now, Alan, if you are careful with the literature, this is an extreme of the extremes, and this is not the position of the Roman Catholic Church. This is the part of Augustine's doctrine that they refuse to embrace, and then they affirm their re rejection of this part at the Council of Trent when they were hammering out with the reformers. Now, some reformers take this extreme. Can you name one? John. Name John. <laughs> John Calvin and his doctrine of total depravity. So it's kind of interesting that, that the thing that we are accusing the Roman Catholics of, they're not, they're not teaching that. They, would, they do deny that in their catechism. And in my book, I cite the catechism sections that they deny that. They're, you're, they're not saying a baby is born guilty of Adam's sin at all. But they are saying that all humanity was corrupted when Adam sinned. This is kind of the mainstream view of those groups that, that embrace this. And so again, the, the doctrine of original sin is a state of existence not an act. The act, the initial sin, was Adam and Eve eating of the forbidden fruit. That's the act, the one-time act. The doctrine of original sin asks the question, 
what happened because of that. That's the doctrine of original sin. And that's what we're disputing. So there's much to commend this view. Um, I mean, if we're honest, it accurately describes our experience of humanity, right? I mean, if we're born sin with a sinful nature and we're, I mean, that just makes sense, right? It <coughs> explains our world. I would contend with that a little bit. Okay, go ahead. Because if everyone was so totally without no goodness, which I believe we were created in the image of God with a good nature okay. that is what corrupted, but it wasn't totally erased. Very good. And so if this world was so depraved with nothing good, I do not think we'd see the beauty of the unbelievers' right actions, but they do. I don't, I think we would see a much more depraved world than we see. Our, our sister has a valid point. I mean, it would be hell, right? Literally. That, that, that would be a description of hell. But then again, you're talking about the extreme. Right. Right. And I am saying that this view does fairly, at least reasonably accurately describe in a general way the condition of the world. It is a pretty messed up place. Carl? It's easy to think, well, I make a mistake, but then occasionally I, you think, you know, my problem is that I sin, but I am a sinner. Oh, there's, I, you know, myself is, is it rejecting God. Right. And turning away. Yeah, and, and the theoretical, yeah, the theoretical question is, do we commit sin or do we, are we sinners because we commit sin or do we commit sin because we're sinners? And, and so where you come out on that continuum reveals what you believe about this doctrine of original sin. Don? Where and how does a child learn mine? I know where yours learned it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, isn't it? And what is the so-called age of accountability? I mean, you, you look at a two, I used to go, when I was in preaching school, uh, my second son, I'm, I hope he doesn't listen to these on the, Jed, I love you, you know I love you. <laughs> but he was two, he was two years old, and our professor was teaching us not to believe in the doctrine of original sin, because babies are wonderful, and babies are pure, and, babies, and I said, brother, you need to come to my house tonight, <laughs> when my son's hungry. <laughs> He's the devil incarnate. <laughs> I love you, Jet. <laughs> but as as uh, who who pointed this out? I think Gary did. You know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice that. Notice that. There are two things being said here. All have sinned, erased, past, punctilier action. All have committed an act of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Whole different thing being said. That's a present, ongoing condition of our existence. Well, it seems that uh, uh, it would be very important to understand what sin is and do we accept 
in First John uh, chapter three, the definition of sin as breaking God's law. Sin being an act of breaking God's law. So if, if sin is breaking the law, the baby doesn't sin until he or she gets old enough to conceive of an act that breaks the law. Then they commit sin. I agree with that. And they're innocent up until that point. They're innocent. They're not sinning. Yeah. Let me make a quick comment, and then I'll let you. Uh, and, and we always wrestle with this, you know, when is the age of accountability? And it seems to me, in my 40 years going to church, the kids that are getting baptized are getting younger and younger and younger. And in our culture, that's what's happening. Our kids are having um, a shorter and shorter childhood. Well, if you look at the Old Testament, God said, this generation will not enter into the promised land because of their sin. And then the next generation came along in Joshua, and he says, those young ones, children, that were not able to know the difference between right and wrong when that declaration was made 40 years ago by God, are now going to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, how? what was that age? 20. 20 years old. Mm -hmm. oh. well, All right. Go ahead. You had something. Some people who believe in this will say that child is being selfish. And that's what they're sinning at. Which I'm like, a baby doesn't even know that they are not their mother. Correct. So when a two-year-old is saying mine, they are developing not selfishness, but a sense of self, which is different than selfishness. No, it's... it's um... So here's Romans 3.10 that Gary alluded to earlier, and it's not pretty. Notice, and I've gone through here, and in brackets I've put, he's... First of all, Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. So this is not one man's you know, armchair psychologist's um, opinion of the human condition. This is a, a man inspired by the Holy Spirit and drawing upon the long tradition of the sacred text to make his point. Uh, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've become worthless. There's none who does good, not even one. There's your list of scriptures that support that. The protein and the vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin misery mark their way, uh, ways, the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So that's a pretty bleak picture of the human condition. And so here's the objection that the objections that I would make to view number one, the extreme. It has things to commend it, okay, but if I can't do anything other than sin and hate God from the moment I come into the world, my, by nature, I'm guilty and more, morally corrupted at birth. The issue then becomes, how can God possibly hold me accountable for my actions? I mean, you got a hungry lion in a cage and you let an infant go in there and the lion eats the infant. Is the lion morally culpable for its actions? No. And I mean, it seems to me that's what this extreme is saying about the human nature. And I don't agree with that. Do you? <clears throat> okay. Second objection. 
Adam, which literally means man or mankind, by the way, sinned, and all, all mankind was in Adam at the time. This whole translation is based on the, the Greek phrase, ho, found in the one that this is where Augustine got his doctrine. He's, he's working with the Latin Vulgate, which they believe was divinely inspired, and it has that Latin phrase, quo omnes precaburin, which means in English, in whom all sin. So to use that translation, his, his, his conclusion is accurate. But the problem is, there's a twofold problem with the translation. First of all, that Greek phrase ho can mean in whom, but it's not required. Paul uses it to mean because, like here, he says, while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Why? Because F ho. And so if you go back and look at uh, Romans 5.12, what does it say? All, uh, somebody read it. Go to 5.12 of Romans. I, I'm terrible at What's your translation say? The, the English standard says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So death spread to all men because all sin. It doesn't say in, you know, Adam sinned and spread death to him because we sinned in him. All right, so there's, now, let's, we got about 13 minutes. That's my objections to the extreme number one. I have objections to extreme number two. That, that the sin of Adam and Eve had no effect on their descendants. Here's why. You know, they, it says human nature was entirely unaffected by the initial sin. I mean, it, it appeals to our sense of fairness. Only those who sin get punished. Of course, we in Church of Christ really like this passage. You know, Ethelgard Smith is huge on this passage in his book. Um, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share. And he says this clearly refutes all ramifications of the doctrine of original sin. Well, I don't agree. I mean, Ethelgard Smith borders, in my opinion, and this is being recorded, he borders, in my opinion, on being a Pelagian. He says it's possible for a human being to live a perfect, sin-free life. I don't agree with that, but that's my opinion. That one, 16 bucks will get you a cup of coffee. <laughs> so here are the objections. It does not conform to our experience in history. I love G.K. Chesterton's quote. You know, certain young theologians dispute the doctrine of original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. <laughs> Empirically, you know, of course human beings are messed up. Just look at the world. Wait a minute. You're saying, go back to that? Okay. You're saying because we look at the world that proves original sin? Well, it proves that the initial sin had some effect on the creation. Mm -hmm. You've got to come to terms with that, is what I'm saying. Well, there's, <coughs> there's consequences. <coughs> Obviously, the original sin, we're all going to die a physical death because of that. We all have to 
work by the sweat of the brow and all those consequences doesn't mean we were born guilty but we're born with the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin and see I would take it even one step further I would say even the good human beings of history like David still had a part of him that was something wrong with him, right? Well, obviously there was a consequence to Adam and Eve's kids because Adam and Eve's kids didn't get to go back to the garden. Exactly. So there was something that happened that was passed on. I agree. So here's here. Physical death, what do we know changed? Physical death and human suffering entered. And here's what I want to read this. So here's, I want to read this. And Eflagard Smith denies this. He, de he says physical death was not a consequence of the initial sin. I don't because of the tyrant death, man, this is an older quote, so he's, going, he's sexist, is unable to live according to his original destiny of selfless love. He now has the instinct of self-preservation firmly rooted within him from his birth. Because he lives constantly under the fear of death, he continuously seeks body, bodily and psychological security and thus becomes individualistically inclined and utilitarian in attitude. Sin is the failure of man to live according to his original destiny of selfless love. And so Gary, I would, I would push back on your comment a little bit. I think the point John is making is not that sin is, is the inability to keep the law of Moses. It says sin is lawlessness. And I'm not referring to the law of Moses. I'm referring to the law, God's law, the law of sin and death, uh, which was in existence from the time of Adam forward before the Ten Commandments. Exactly. That law in Romans, uh, the first three chapters, says that even if you don't have the law, you have the law in your heart. There is a law that is a God-given law that is the law of sin and death. That means if you break God's standards, you have broken his law. And, and the argument that this theologian is making that would be very, very similar, if not identical to the one I make, is that because we're born into an environment that is hostile toward us, we, from the moment of our first consciousness, we know that we are mortal and going to sin and that we have to work by the sweat of our brow to provide for ourselves it turns us in on ourselves and makes us self-absorbed. And so we seek not, uh, this failure is rooted in the disease of death because death in the hands of Satan is the cause of sin, the kingdom of the devil, and sin is destroyed by the abolition of death. So in other words, you know, as I am 58 years old and I'm, I'm fearful of, I'm really not fearful of my death. I'll tell you what I'm fearful of. I'm fearful of the last five or 10 years of my life. How am I going to provide for myself? What do I got to do? So I start saving money. Well, does that money become an idol to me and all these other things? So regardless of one's view, this is my wording now, of, of original sin, it seems inescapable to me that the fear of death 
has permanently and profoundly affected the human condition. The fear of aging and eventually dying causes every person to turn in on him or herself to become self-absorbed and self-occupied. And this self-absorption leads to an abandonment, abandonment of God and a fall into sin. Add to this another consequence of the first sin, the curse of having to live, to earn a living by toil and sweat, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat your food until the return of the ground. And you have the perfect recipe for a race of creatures completely self-absorbed by the difficulty of their fallen existence. So regardless of what one believes about the inborn nature of such creatures, it must be admitted that the, the environment into which each is born drives them into a life of self-obsession and resulting disobedience toward God. Go ahead. There's a, an assumption made that having to work and it being hard is negative. And I would contend that I see that God gave us the world to be over it and gave us work and work was a blessing. And I, I think that's something to maybe examine how God viewed work and how he gave us the earth to be over it. And not necessarily in the negative, as much of the negative that I see you putting into it. Well, I go back to the curse, the original curse that God placed. I mean, he cursed the ground. You ever, yeah, you ever known a farmer? <laughs> Genesis 2.15 talks about when God gave Adam to work the garden. So man was to be busy and that was constructive. Work is a good thing. But then in the next chapter, he curses it and he said, Now I will bring forth thorns and thistles and it will be harder for you to get your food. So then it becomes a negative in that it's a harder by the sweat of your brow means it's going to be much more difficult exactly. than the original job that I had for you, which was good work. What do you do with the fact of the matter that, I mean, the angels rebelled against God. Right. Adam and Eve in a perfect environment rebelled against God. Exactly. I don't think we're doing anything a whole lot different on this earth. I agree. I agree. Very so again, and I'm wrapping up, I have four minutes. Was human nature corrupted? In my mind, the answer is irrelevant. Why? Because the human environment was radically changed and it produces the same result. So here's my, here's my thesis. Sin is inevitable. There is no human being born into this creation after sin entered through Adam and Eve who can live a, a sin-free life. Inspired scripture affirms this because Paul says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, and it's little L there, then Christ died for nothing. If it's possible for human beings to live a sin-free life in this hostile environment, then Christ died for nothing. That's Paul's theology. Johnny? But Jesus did. But Jesus did. Very good. The, that, that's the problem with me. I think Pelagian, and, and I would tend to... Uh, uh, haven't read enough of him to know so but I have some I think what he's saying is once you go down this road 
And, and you're misinterpreting Paul. For someone who sinned, we can't get salvation through the law because we just became condemned. Correct. Okay, so all have sinned except one. Except one. And if you go with the some kind of doctrine of original sin, that one could not have existed. Correct. All right, I got two minutes to do my wrap up. So here, this is my my position. Okay, a perfect life by a human being after sin entered the world is impossible. Therefore, we must conclude either human nature was corrupted, which I don't care. I'm not going to voice an opinion because it doesn't matter to me. The human environment is corrupted, and it forces us into self-absorption which is the foundation of disobedience toward God and lack of trust in God so concluding remarks these 250 years was this focus this wrestling back and forth of the nature of sin the conclusion was that sin corrupted creation and human nature that was the, the official doctrine embraced and so, again, remember, original sin is not an act. It's a state of existence. So how do we remove, and here's the key, and then we're actually going to be caught up in a minute and a half. In 90 seconds, we're going to be caught up. The question then became, okay, there's this original sin that has affected us all and will always affect us all. How do we get rid of it? Be baptized. And remember... What was the practice? Baptize infants. Mm -hmm. So the question then became, how do you handle post-baptismal sin? Because the focus of the purpose of Christian baptism was to remove the stain of original sin, but the, the tendency to sin continues even after <clears throat> baptism. So how do you deal with that? Baptize them again. Baptize them again. Yeah, I've been baptized three times. <laughs> sin doesn't remove, and this is the this is the technical word that, that is being used, concupiscence. But a Christian will sin after being baptized, and so an elaborate, detailed system came into existence through the centuries of how to deal with post-baptismal sin and that system is called penance and that's where we will start next time we have three seconds i could do i could do tv right and now a word from our sponsor let me lead us in a prayer before we go god thank you for your word uh, i know father that this is a lot of information and i just pray again that i'm not presenting in a way that uh, is arrogant or that I know it all. I'm just trying to get the information out there to lay a foundation for later discussions because you've rectified the sin problem. And that's the good news. We don't have to be worried about it. And uh, that's what I'm trying to get to. And so just bless us, Father, as we step by step, brick by brick, build this foundation and then show the glory of the gospel in coming weeks. Bless this beautiful family, God. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for our Easter celebration. Thank you for Saturday and the kids and the parents that came. Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege 
to be involved in your life here on this earth and continue to give us insight into where you're moving, where you're working, and help us go to those places and to be your ambassadors for the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.